Thanks for joining us for uh, Access Utah. Before we jump into today's topic, uh, unfinished business from yesterday, you recall we uh, had an encore presentation of a uh, program from last year with uh, John McWhorter on his book, Words on the Move, Why English Won't and Can't Sit Still, like literally. That's the uh, charming <laughs> uh, subtitle. And uh, about the ways that the language changes. And uh, Mon Gregory responded to the program. His email uh, says, What about the po- politics of language? In terms of race, class, and gender, so-called standard English is the English spoken in white, middle, to upper-class homes and workplaces and is used as a way to artificially oppress people who speak different kinds of English. Colonialism spread English around the world and enriched the language tremendously as well as producing numerous varieties of local, quote-unquote, pidgin English that are legitimate, rich dialects. Isn't social justice an important part of the critique of elitism, purism you're worried about? That's Mon Gregory. Thanks for that. Welcome now to Access Utah. Uh, in reporting for her new book, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus, Vanessa Grigoriadis traveled to schools large and small, embedding in their social world, talking candidly with dozens of students, among them both accusers and accused, as well as administrators, parents, and researchers. And her investigation presents a host of new truths. She reveals which times and settings are most dangerous for women. She demystifies the welter of conflicting statistics about the prevalence of campus rape. She makes a case that not all sexual assault is equivalent. She offers controversial advice on how schools, students, and parents can make college a safer, richer experience. And we bring on uh, Vanessa Grigoriadis uh, to the program uh, today. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This, of course, an important, very important topic. Um, you, uh, I spent, I think you spent a couple, two or three years uh, doing these interviews, traveling to campuses. What was uh, what was the original question or series of questions you wanted to answer here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm a magazine writer, and I have covered um, all sorts of mores throughout America and how those mores are changing. And I became particularly interested in sexual mores and those on campus, which, as we all know, are in a time of radical shift. Um, So I believe that we, on campuses today, um, you know, even really religious campuses, um, there is a renewed interest in something that I would call ethical sex. So, um, you know, we're currently living in a country that doesn't really promote the ideas of morals and ethics related to sexual activity. But college students today are becoming very interested in this question of what is permissible in sex? How do we have sex that is thoughtful and that is compassionate? And, um, you know, my interest is connecting that to the sexual assault issue on campuses, which I believe um, is something perpetrated by uh, a bunch of men who are, who are immoral um, and, and trying to draw those lines between moral and immoral sex is something that has become, you know, a matter of intense interest for the country, for students, um, you know, for the media at large, as we now see that so many stories have come out about Bill O'Reilly or Roger Ailes or now Harvey Weinstein and the way that they were perpetrating bad acts for decades and getting away with it. So do you think this is a, these mores are changing not only on campus but uh, in, in larger society? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the argument in my book, um, you know, my book is called Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. And um, it really chronicles the last couple of years and the ways in which this debate has been brought to the fore. Um, you know, college presidents have been involved, students have been involved, both radically progressive students and also conservative students. Um, you know, many religious institutions have been really drawn into this debate. Um, in some ways, they have, uh, you know, felt a a little overprotective and felt like they don't necessarily want 
um, their universities to be subject to a bunch of rules that Obama made about sex on campus, right, a couple of years ago. I mean, this is really where this whole discussion began on campus was with President Obama in 2011 saying, I want to have some very strict rules around sex and sexual assault on campuses. Um, And, you know, the fallout continues to today. I want to get into that, and uh, and of course Title IX enters in uh, here as well. We've we've had some we have some ongoing investigations of Title IX alleged violations uh, for campuses here in Utah, um, and uh, a, a, a big case recently at, at BYU. And you, we can get into mm-hmm. talking about private universities and uh, how things are a little different uh, there. Uh, I'm interested just generally before we get into to some of that. Um, how women's attitudes especially are changing, the young women that you, you you talk to and their definitions of what is and is not sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there has been a wild shift in the way, you know, I'm a Gen X mother of two, right? The way that I look at sexual assault may be, okay, if there was no violence, if there was no physical violence, then perhaps you know, or a power differential, right? Like something like a Bill O'Reilly, where we know he was sexually harassing different women who wanted to be anchors on Fox News. You know, as a country, I think we understand that. We understand somebody holds a gun to your head or jumps out at you in a parking lot or tries to use his power um, in terms of you can get a job at Fox News if you do this and not if you don't do this. I think as a country, we're starting to accept that those are things that are just not okay in a civilized society. But, you know, young women really want to broaden the definition of sexual assault to include all sorts of acts that don't have a lot to do with power differentials and don't have a lot to do with physical violence. And of course, we've been here before, right? We all know about date rape from the 1990s. That was a big thing back then. This acceptance that, you know, you could be on a date with somebody and you've even had some flirtation and have some sexual interest in that person and still not want to actually have sex with that person and be pressured or coerced into it. Um, young women today are also really interested in things that are groping, right, that are that are groping, that are about um, a man coming up to them at a fraternity party, a, a fellow classmate, and smacking them, smacking their butts, or grabbing some part of their private areas, um, and trying to say that also is sexual assault. So it's become, in a lot of ways, a grab bag for any touching of the body that is not agreed to. And, um, you know, this is, this is pretty, pretty radical and pretty different. And uh, on a theoretical level, it, I believe it's a good thing because, you know, come on, everybody should keep their hands to themselves, right? But on a practical level, it has created some confusion because you do have college girls saying, oh, that guy is my rapist. And when we look at the actual, uh, you know, scenario, it does not seem to a reasonable person, certainly a middle-aged person, that a rape has occurred there. So, you know, I, I believe the movement is good. I would like them to be a little bit more careful with their language. I think there's a propensity to take everything to, you know, the thousandth, you know, kind of degree and and shout from the rooftops about things that may not be as serious. I think that may be muddying the waters a bit. Um, but, you know, we certainly are at a moment where men are starting to say, wow, this is really serious. You know, I really need to understand what I am doing right, what I am doing wrong, what consent really is, um, and make sure I don't hurt anybody and make sure that I act in an ethical fashion to my fellow classmate, my fellow coworker, um, my dates, you know, the girls that I flirt with on a online dating site. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of scenarios uh, for them to think about. That that sounds encouraging. That the young men you're mm-hmm. talking to are are at least some of the young men, right? Are are um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, rethinking uh, rethinking this? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that young men across the country are now looking at, you know, Angelina Jolie coming out and saying, I had a bad experience with Harvey Weinstein. You know, Gwyneth Paltrow saying, I had a bad experience with Harvey Weinstein. I mean, Britt Marling, there's been an endless stream of stars coming out and saying this was not okay. And I think that, you know, on college campuses as well, this is a fervent debate among students. Um, And men are, you know, perhaps a little frightened of it because I think most men, um, you know, do have a nightmare about a Kafkaesque scenario in which they would be accused of assault, yet not have done it and not be able to prove their innocence. I mean, that's that's fairly terrifying. I would be terrified of that if I was a guy. But I also think that they're starting to really open up and listen to these women's stories and say, wow, you know, this is this is serious. And I better make sure that I'm a good guy here. I better make sure that I'm seen in the eyes of other women as, you know, somebody that they respect and that they want to date, right? Because, I mean, that's been a big shift here is that the cool girls on campus and the cool, you know, women in Hollywood, the Gwyneth Paltrow's of the world, the people who, you know, are ostensibly idols that a lot of young um, people look up to and are on the silver screen, they're the ones talking out. And, um, you know, I think we know from a lot of social movements that when the cool girls get involved, you know, a lot of men start listening. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think if the, if the young women are, are, you know, really pushing on this, then the, at least some of the young men will listen. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to bring this up. This goes back to your previous point. Um, you talked to a, a young woman named Chloe, and I mm-hmm. think this, this passage is from a friend of hers. They're walking across campus. The friend of Chloe's says, there are so many rapists on this campus, you never know who is one. Because mm-hmm. that gets into, um, I guess, a very broad definition, or, or I guess potential rapists, or this lies in the heart of, of young men on campus. I'm not sure what right. she was referring to. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this goes back to what I was saying before, which is that um, a lot of college you know, women, and I'm particularly talking about um, progressive radicals, right? I mean, I think we know um, by this point there's been so much news about the um, hard left on campus. And the hard left on campus has, you know, a certain set of um, politics um, that they generally all subscribe to. You know, they're anti-Israel. They are um, anti you know, they're, they're pro-DACA, um, they're anti-Trump, they're pro-Black Lives Matter, um, and they're also very fervently, you know, they call it pro-survivor, be, meaning a survivor of rape, a survivor of sexual assault, should always be supported. Um, and, you know, I have been to many rallies with these kids uh, on campuses across the country, um, and I've heard this rhetoric um, many, many times now. And um, they, you know, the, the progressive students are really using the word rape to label different guys on campus. This is true. Now, at the same time, a lot of rape is happening on campus. Right. I mean, we can't say that that is not also occurring. We do have statistics that show that whether you think they're a bit overblown or not, they are there. Um, And, you know, to me, that student saying there are so many rapists on campus, you know, I would have really had to query her from there and say, look, rape involves penetration, you know, against one's will. It really does involve coercion of some sort. Um, You know, are you talking about um, bad nights uh, where, you know, a drunken man may kind of push but not actually make anything, you know, no sexual contact occurred, but somebody acted in a very boorish way? Um, because we shouldn't be calling that rape. We shouldn't be diluting that term to the point where it just means generally bad behavior by men. 
Um, so, you know, again, while I believe that the movement against sexual assault on campus is a very good one, I do think there is a lot of messiness here. Um, and there are a lot of edges to it that are, are blurry and, and, and complicated. Let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, Vanessa Grigoriadis, uh, her uh, new book, a very important book, um, is called Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on uh, Campus. Uh, just uh, just out. And for this book, uh, Vanessa Grigoriadis uh, traveled to uh, several schools, talked candidly with dozens of students, among them accusers and accused, as well as administrators, parents, and researchers. And uh, we're talking about the uh, the book uh, on the program uh, today. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the things that have happened here on in Utah campuses and uh, much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and ASI presenting robot demonstrations, trick-or-treating, and costume contests at 9 a.m. on October 28th. Information at 435-755-2980 and at facebook.com slash ASI Gives Back. It's haunting time on the Putumayo World Music Hour. Halloween is a time of spooky celebration, and on the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll hear songs about ghosts, spirits, and black magic. Hey, there's a hole in the pumpkin. There's a must be Halloween. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Halloween Around the World on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Science by the Slice. Today's electronics demand safer, more compact, and less expensive batteries. USU chemist Leo Liu and students are studying magnesium batteries, which offer these advantages and may someday replace lithium-ion batteries. A challenge is unreliable performance, which Liu says is caused by impurities in the battery's electrolyte. He and his team discovered adding magnesium powder remedies this obstacle and yields improved performance. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about a very important topic of uh, sexual assault on campus and, uh, more broadly, uh, sex on campus. The uh, book is Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. And uh, the writer is Vanessa Grigoriadis. She has uh, joined us for the hour. And you can join this conversation, if you would like, uh, a couple of ways, by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Or our telephone number, toll-free, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Vanessa Grigoriadis, before the, the break, uh, you, you were saying that uh, young women on campus are, are, are pushing the definitions uh, in a kind of a moral sense, an ethical sense, right? We uh, certainly should not be having rape. Uh, we shouldn't not be having sexual assault, but also we shouldn't be having groping and, and these sorts of things, and I think... I certainly was nodding my head, and I'm sure most of our audience was. That's on the, the, the moral, right? The mores, the ethical plane. Uh, gets even more blurred if you take that into legal uh, definitions. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, you know, what's going on right now around Title IX on college campuses? And this was, you know, spurred by Obama, but Betsy DeVos, uh, you know, even though she has said she wants to make some changes in the campus courts, she certainly has not walked back the general notion of Title IX, um, which is that uh, there should be a different definition of sexual consent on campus than off campus, 
right? Off campus, legally in this country, we have kind of a patchwork of rules around, uh, you know, and laws around, uh, you know, sexual assault. In some states, um, you know, we, it, it, something like a groping is, is merely a misdemeanor, right? E- even if there was uh, a knife plus groping, you know, I, I don't know what kind of jail time or prison time anybody would really see there. Um, But on campus, uh, you know, there's been this new idea of consent, that consent must be present for any sort of sexual encounter. So I'm not talking about consent and uh, verbal coercion in terms of, okay, you're an undocumented immigrant and you work at a restaurant and your boss says, if you don't sleep with me, I'm going to call ICE and tell them that you're undocumented, right? I think we understand that's coercion. But on campuses, we're talking about something that is even blurrier than that, which is this notion of consent. Was consent to have sex present? Now, you know, unfortunately, consent is a word that sounds really great, um, and it's a, a good kind of zeitgeist word that a lot of college students are using right now. But my definition and your definition and the definition of a 60-year-old man and the definition of a 22-year-old woman, these are all very different definitions of what consent may be. Um, a 22-year-old woman may say, I would like to be verbally asked. I would like a guy to say to me, is this okay? May I kiss you? May I kiss you before he tries to kiss me because I may not want to kiss him, but I may feel, uh, you know, kind of uncomfortable and then it was just gross and why did he kiss me? I would have liked it if he had asked me first. Now, a six-year-old man may say, I mean, come on, this is not the way the world works, right? You know, let's grow up. So, um, again, we're in this kind of vast redefinition of what those terms mean, but specifically on campus, due to Title IX, which is this, you know, national rule that says that students must be safe from any sort of discrimination on campus, and that also means gender discrimination, right, that a a female student um, couldn't get worse grades from a professor than a man just because the, you know, the male professor looked down on her or something. Um, They also, due to Title IX, they must also keep their students, their female students particularly safe from encroachment by male students. Um, So this is, you know, this is this kind of very messy issue where, you know, again, the universities are trying to promulgate a different sexual standard than exists off campus, and it is very confusing, and it, and it is new. The, uh, the the proposal, part of the proposal, is a, a, dip, a change in the um, in the definition of the evidence, right? The from mm-hmm. from 50, from 50, 50 yeah. plus a feather, as you've described it, to mm-hmm. kind of a seventy five percent preponderance of the evidence. That's right. So DeVos um, certainly wants some changes within the campus courts. So, you know, in addition to everything I've just mentioned being confusing, then there is an additional complication, which is how do we punish these boys who have done these acts? So universities, again, with Obama's um, kind of encouragement, really beefed up their campus disciplinary courts to... um, punish these men. And, you know, we have found over the last couple of years that there have been a lot of problems with those courts. One thing that Obama demanded was that those courts use the preponderance of the evidence. So a man would have to be 51% guilty to be uh, punished, perhaps even expelled, right, from the university. Um, And DeVos has said, you know, I I really don't think universities need to do that. It's up to you. But I like a clear and convincing standard, which is something more like a 75% guilt standard. So it's not as high as beyond a reasonable doubt, 
but I'd like a little more certainty that the man has actually done this before I go ahead and, you know, banish him from campus and really kind of upend his life because being expelled from campus, being expelled from school is a very big deal. You know, it is not, it is not a minor thing. You said, I was reading another interview, you said something to the effect of if it's sort of right on the line, if it's, uh, I guess, if it, if it is murky, um, you would lean more toward, uh, you know, let's, let's not expel the, the young man because we have, we have some, some young men uh, sitting in their parents' basements uh, getting on Reddit all day and saying how much they hate women. Essentially, we just kicked them out of campus and uh, they're not as productive as they, they could be. I'm sure, I'm sure there are people who disagree with you on, on that and say that uh, we need to err definitely on the side of, uh, of the accuser. Sure. I mean, you know, my perspective is that, you know, some new evidence, I mean, some new research really shows that, um, you know, the the men who are assaulting on campus are are not really like Bill O'Reilly, Harvey Weinstein, Roger Ailes. They're not these kind of compulsive um, predators who have been doing this for decades. A lot of them are guys who have been schooled in kind of the negative, uh, you know, masculinity of our country that says, you know, oh, pop culture is great for um, for guys to think of themselves as these players and girls are just, you know, kind of there for the guys to uh, pick and choose and, you know, a guy is in control in all times and, you know, the use of pornography is no big deal um, and these kinds of like very, you know, kind of base um, sexual desires can be acted upon in college because college is almost like Las Vegas. You go there, what happens there stays there. It was no big deal. It was just a crazy night in college. You know, um, I think that's a, you know, that is, that is the wrong way to think about sexual relations really at any age, but particularly in college, which is a very formative time in a lot of people's lives where they put together their identities going forward, particularly their sexual identities. So um, my perspective from this research is what we need to do is re-educate a lot of guys about what is ethical, what is moral, what is permissible in 2017 and say, look, we need you grew up as teenagers, maybe there was a different message given to you back then. But right now, we're shifting all these um, standards around what is permissible in sex and what is okay um, for women to bear. And we want you to stand up and fly straight. And we will give you the benefit of the doubt here, and let's see if you can do it. I mean, we know, you know, as a country, we know that rehabilitation works much better, right, than incarceration in a lot of cases. And I think that there are guys here that we can re-educate, and we should give them punishments of 30 hours of seminars about healthy relationships and healthy sexuality and the meaning of consent versus, as you say, kicking them off campus because they will get involved in all those websites that are misogynistic. They will feel very angry at at women generally, right, because they feel an ill was done to them. Um, Because believe me, (laughs) I've interviewed hundreds of college students. I have rarely met a college man who has said to me, that girl was right, I was a rapist, I deserved everything I got, right? They more say, I'm a bit confused by this. I think that was a night on which I did not practice good judgment, but I'm not ready to call myself a rapist for it. Um, I'm listening. I'm willing to hear the other side. You know, help me. Um, You know, people are a lot better at their core, right, than we give them credit for. So let's look at these boys and say, you know, you're here at a place of education. A university is an institution of education, and we will educate you on this as well. Um, as a general rule, kind of general principle, should uh, should most of these cases be adjudicated, handled uh, at the campus level, or, or should they be uh, turned over to the, the the local criminal justice system? Right. I mean, this is yet another complication. You know, this is a very very naughty issue with a lot of 
um, you know, big decisions that need to be made to figure out how to steer the ship in the right way. So, you know, here's the thing. Um, I, you know, am, am all for rapists being public punished in the criminal justice system. But, you know, the fact is that a lot of these things that are happening on campus, as I said earlier, they don't rise to the level of a stranger jumping out from behind a parked car in a parking lot and attacking a freshman. They are not about guns and knives and violence, you know, and and our police generally prosecute things like that. Right. Again, Harvey Weinstein, there's no criminal prosecution against him right now. Bill O'Reilly certainly was not criminally prosecuted. Um, You know, there's there are a lot of things that are happening sexually that are immoral, but they may not rise to the level of criminal. And that's a big deal in terms of saying, let's give all these cases to the campus cops. Because then what you are really saying is, let's not do anything about these cases. Because the cops are really not going to be able to handle these murky questions of what's consent on campus. And, you know, uh, while this, you know, both people were incredibly drunk, was one person almost passed out? Is that what really happened? Um, Your standard groping case that is just really, you know, gross but not quite criminal, perhaps. Um, Is that really the place of the criminal justice system? Um, You know, unfortunately, the campus courts aren't working that well. But if they were working better, I would argue, again, that this is a a situation of re-education, and it would be fantastic if it could be handled by the university. Uh, I imagine a, a lot of young women uh, don't report. I mean, we know we know we know this from statistics. A lot goes unreported. Um, part of that, I could guess, uh, maybe you could confirm or deny this. That that's uh, just a sort of a despondence, or that I'm not going to get justice. Um, kind of illustrating this, and and kind of the, the murkiness of the evidence in some of these cases. Um, you, you write about Emma Sulkowitz. Mm-hmm. Um, who who became famous for carrying a mattress around uh, around campus? To she she didn't get the justice that she felt like she deserved, and uh, so she uh, she she went in in this very public way to uh, I don't know what she was trying to do call attention, of course, to the case, shame the university. I'm not sure what she was her goal was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Emma Silkowitz was the woman who was referred to as Mattress Girl, right? And she. Um, carried a mattress around Columbia University's campus for a year to protest their handling of her case. Um, She wanted them to, you know, expel the boy that she said assaulted her. Um, And I wrote a story about her um, for the magazine that I work for, New York Magazine, and it was called A Very Different Kind of Sexual Revolution on Campus. Um, And again, going through these ideas that I have about um, some of these cases not being criminal, but being a a sexual revolution, being a, a moral revolution in the way that we look at sex. So now her case, you know, as time went on and she gathered more and more attention for this, you know, Hillary Clinton said of her carrying the mattress, that image should haunt us all. Um, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand brought her to um, a State of the Union that Obama gave. Um, She gathered a lot of attention and the boy um, began to speak out. And one thing he did was he revealed some text messages that they had had between them, both before and afterwards. Um, And he really painted her as a vengeful ex-girlfriend, as somebody who he had lost interest in and thereby she had um, promulgated this lie, you know. And he also had some text messages from after the fact in which she was trying to see him again and trying to hang out with him again. Now, her explanation was, I was trying to see him because I wanted to tell him how upset I was. Um, And this is something I heard from many victims uh, across the country. Um, Many girls really will say in the days following this episode, I would like to see you. I would like to talk to you about this because they think, you know, they're so confused by what happened and so upset. And they think perhaps 
they could talk to the guy and he could explain what he was really thinking or apologize or something along those lines. So I, I don't find that to be, you know, hugely damning evidence, but some of the text messages were very damning. And, um, you know, as, as it stands, her case in some ways is a mystery, right? We don't really know what happened. And look, there are cases like this. I think it's worth being honest about it. Um, I do think that there are very few cases in which the woman is making up the story out of whole cloth. Again, you know, a famous case is the uh, story that Rolling Stone ran about the supposed gang rape at the University of Virginia in a fraternity house. And that story was proven to be a hoax. And that that is a true rarity. I mean, the, the notion that a woman would say a gang rape occurred when there was not even, you know, a gathering of men at that fraternity house on that night and make up the name of the boy who she said assaulted her um, and make a fake email account for him, as that girl did. I mean, this is not what's happening, right? There, there are not women who are creating these kind of fabrications. But there are questions about consent. There are scenarios that remain messy, you know, and I just feel that we're better off as a society with saying, all right, let's let's say that. Let's put that on the table. And um, and then let's say, where do we want to draw the bright lines? What do we want to call sexual assault? You know, where do we want these lines to fall and try to come to a consensus around it? Is is that possible, do you think, to get some bright lines uh, drawn? And, and if so, where where would those be? Yeah. Well, look, right now, you know, having all of these stars step forward about Harvey Weinstein, clearly, uh, you know, a, a new line has been drawn. And bosses across the country who may have um, predated upon you know, their uh, secretaries uh, for years and years and years um, are getting a very different message than they used to. And and they're finding out that their secrets are not safe anymore um, and that women may indeed come out, you know, particularly women who don't work for them anymore, because, of course, if you're still employed, you don't want to lose your job, right? And you're not really quite sure, you know, what side the HR, you know, the Human Resources Department is going to take. So there certainly are women out there who are not speaking out and who are, you know, in these kind of complex and very unfortunate and unpleasant situations. But um, I think that anybody who, you know, is a boss who has been doing things like this to his underlings has to be taking a look in the mirror right now. Yeah, I think we did just get a bright line. And I think we can expect that more and more of these bright lines will be drawn as we go forward. If you just joined us, we're talking with Vanessa Grigoriadis, her uh, new book, uh, interesting book, important book, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. You're welcome to join this conversation by email to upraccess at gmail.com or by phone. Our toll-free number is 800-826-1495. When we come back in our last segment, I want to treat a couple of uh, topics, alcohol and pornography, also bring it uh, home to uh, some schools in uh, Utah. More following this break. I think the main reason why I love Bullseye is Jesse's ability to really ask sincere questions, not just because he's trying to get an interesting answer, but because he seems to really want to know. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, it's a very special Halloween episode of Bullseye. You'll hear from Elvira, the great Andy Daly, and more. That's on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cash Valley Center for the Arts presenting Earth's Dinosaur Zoo live. Puppeteers introduce audiences to large-form, lifelike dinosaurs and other creatures in a 50-minute zoo-style prehistoric tour, Monday, November 6th at 7.30 p.m. Details at cacharts.org. Programming is also made possible uh, in part by Moab Folk Festival 2017. The 15th annual Moab Folk Festival, November 3rd through the 5th, featuring Daryl Scott, Tom Paxton, Front Country, and more. Information is at moabfolkfestival.com.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with Vanessa Grigoriadis. The book is Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. So, Vanessa Grigoriadis, I want to uh, bring this home to Utah. Several universities in Utah um, are under, uh, I believe, under uh, Title IX investigation, including Utah State University, where we're broadcasting uh, from. And uh, there's a much-publicized case last year at Brigham Young University, private university. Uh, One of the factors there was that uh, uh, accusers could be subject to honor code violations. All students sign up that uh, one of the things you're not supposed to do is have uh, have extramarital sex. And so you could open yourself up to uh, honor code violation, possible expulsion from the university if you come forward with an accusation. BYU has announced uh, some changes, an amnesty clause in the in the honor code. It does illustrate uh, that not all universities are the same, right? And private universities, sometimes it can be especially um, blurred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of the rules are for both private and public universities. You know, Obama's rules that are being continued by Betsy DeVos. But clearly, you know, Betsy DeVos is more concerned with um, issues of religious liberty than Obama was, right? And she also, you know, is interested in universities making their own rules about um, the sex lives of their students on campus. And I think the Brigham Young... um, Example also, you know, involves alcohol, right? So um, we know from research that over half of sexual assaults on campus occur when there is use of alcohol. So it, you know, I go into this in my book in quite a bit of detail, um, but, you know, the, the, boy will sometimes use alcohol to uh, kind of ply a girl who may be somewhat unwilling. Um, We also have a lot of, you know, young women on campus who don't have experience with drinking. And, you know, even at a university like Brigham Young, there is drinking happening. I mean, I think everybody kind of knows that, even if it's um, quite a bit uh, different than, you know, the kind of drinking that goes on at a Big Ten college, you know, football campus, right? Um, so, you know, how how do we deal with uh, the kind of murkiness of sexual assault when both people or one person has been drinking at a, at a place like Brigham Young, where a girl may be afraid to report because she's worried not only about the extramarital sex um, on her clauses, but also about uh, the fact that she's been drinking, right? Um, and I, they have changed that policy around drinking. Um, you will not get an honor code violation if you come forward and say, okay, I was drinking and then I was sexually assaulted. And I think that's a very positive change. Um, you know, it is, as you mentioned earlier, it is very hard for a girl to stand up and say, I was sexually assaulted. I want to tell my story to administrators, um, these middle-aged people, and be judged by them and relive the experience. I mean, these are this is incredibly difficult and also very embarrassing in a lot of ways for the girl. Um, and that girl should be supported and not worried that she's going to be punished by her university because she was also drinking. Mm. Um, I wonder about uh, pornography. Uh, you, you've apparently done some research into uh, Fight the New Drug uh, Movement organization, okay. which is based here in uh, in Utah. What would you say about uh, consumption of pornography and uh, and uh, connections or, or or not with sexual yeah. assault? Well, you know, my book is really about, um, it's really kind of targeted for parents to learn how to protect their daughters from being assaulted and their sons from being accused of assault or putting themselves into situations where they behave in this immoral fashion. And one of the things that I do go into quite extensively is the use of pornography. Um, And I think, you know, that pornography is being given way too much of a pass in our culture. I think Fight the New Drug is a great movement. And, um, you know, we don't have, it's true that, you know, 
some of the research uh, for fight, fight the new drug is extremely compelling. Um, some of it perhaps does not go as far as I would like it to on a scientific aspect to say that porn really is warping the minds of our young. But we do know that a lot of the low-level acts of violence have increased in pornography, meaning the slapping or hair-pulling or hitting of women, and they have become very normalized. So, uh, you know, this is not your father's porn. This is certainly not your grandfather's porn. And to think that it is not having an effect, that the consumption of those images by, you know, middle school and high school boys is not having an effect on the way that they treat women in the bedroom is, to me, just totally preposterous. Um, I really don't understand why this isn't a bigger mainstream news story, because it's it's so clearly connected to, um, you know, sexual morality. And, you know, also women are watching this who, you know, girls are watching this. They're able to access it on their computers, and they may think to themselves, this is how I have to act because this is what sex is supposed to be. Um, so I, I'm really concerned that it's been downplayed um, as a you know kind of national American issue, and um, very much explained you know in the larger media as something that well you know come on you know this is the world we live in. But you know I believe we can make a bit better world, and I think that's an area that really uh, is connected to sexual assault, um, and, and, and we need to probe that even more deeply. I want to talk a little bit about the numbers. Um, this can get very confusing, hotly debated. Um, the number I hear a lot is one in five, I, I think meaning mm-hmm. one in five um, you know, uh, female college students will be uh, sexually assaulted. There are assaults on, on men as well, but uh, predominantly women be sexually assaulted during their during their uh, college years. Is, is that a solid number? Okay, so <laughs> it is, uh, it is a, an area, once again, of complication and, and debate. Um, so, you know, one in five women will be sexually assaulted, college women will be sexually assaulted by graduation if we define sexual assault to include, of course, groping, as I said before, any sort of low-level kind of thing, you know, grope that happens in a fraternity house will be grouped in there. Um, That number also really includes attempted assaults, which may be... um, I went home with that guy, he really creeped me out, so I left. Um, you know, we don't totally know that creeped me out means that that guy was an assaulter. Um, and it does also include, you know, the the uh, months that are spent off campus, so we can't really lay this all at the college's feet, right? It includes summers and the long winter breaks, et cetera, and the life of a college student. So what we do know is that 18 to 24-year-old American girls are at the most risk of assault of anybody in the country. And I believe if we look at that one in five number, we could take it up to something like one in 14 college women would be assaulted during their college experiences. Um, To me, that is still an epidemic number. You know, one in five sounds great. It maybe makes a better headline. But one in 14, um, you know, if you told me that one in 14, you know, people were going to get, you know, some sort of cancer, right, we'd be taking vast steps as a a society to try to take care of that. Um, So those numbers are real if if a bit inflated. Mm. Just have about three minutes left tonight. I want to talk about, um, I guess the bottom line is, uh, you know, one sexual assault or rape is is too many. uh, And you said at the beginning of the program, it seems like mores are changing for the better. Uh, Young women are... Are, are you know demanding uh, better behavior from from their sexual partners? Um, how does how does this get changed in a in a real way? Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think it is already changing, but um, I think universities really need to look at the structure of their campuses. They need to look at the way that they've pushed drinking to fraternity houses, the bad behavior that's going on there. Um, they need to really think about instilling a kind of healthy relationship, uh, moral education around sex for their students, um, whether they're looking at, you know, extramarital sex as a center or not, you know, people are still going to get married and they still need to know how to behave in a responsible way to their partners when that does happen. Um, I think that, you know, we just need to look at institutionally, what can we do to support our college students on this journey? Because college really is the change maker in this country. College is where we create the next set of leaders. Um, and if we change it there, it may roll out, you know. So so I do think that these questions about consent are very much in the front of, you know, top of mind for a lot of college students. And, you know, they're going to continue to push the definitions. Um, of course, you spent a lot of time on this book. You've done a lot of reporting in this area. Is is there one unanswered question that you're maybe going to continue pursuing? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I, I certainly am interested in this question of, uh, you know, what to do about the sports teams. Um, what do we do about athletics? Because, you know, the, the, the athletic departments across the country, particularly football, um, have proven themselves over and over to not uh, really uh, take some of these cases seriously when they are quite serious cases. So, you know, college football creates more revenue now than the NHL, than the National Hockey League. Like, it is big, big, big-time business. So, um, you know, if we're bringing a lot of those students to campus and they are acting in a way that is completely uh, inappropriate and many times criminal with, uh, with female students, you know, what do we need to do to change the culture of those departments? I mean, I think it would be interesting to say, you know, should we pay college football players? You know, would that maybe give them, you know, great apartments to live in and a different place to, you know, don't treat them just like, you know, these are our kind of indentured servants and they have access to the girls' bodies on campus. You know, their payment kind of comes uh, by being a campus celebrity and being able to have these groupies with whom they then have sex that often, like, crosses the line. You know, let's let's perhaps look at them as, you know, these are – these football players are creating revenue for the university. Uh, they should be paid and have kind of adult lifestyles and, you know, maybe, I don't know, have real girlfriends and take them out to dinner and not participate in this kind of very raunchy um, corner of campus culture. Um, I really think that athletic departments, you know, university presidents need to think long and hard about their role in terms of sexual assault happening there. Well, the book, an important new book, Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus, and the authors, Vanessa Grigoriadis, who has joined us for the hour. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, coming up tomorrow, we are going to, appropriate for October, we're going to think about death and dying. There's a new exhibit online and at the USU Library. It's called Memento Mori. It's Latin for Remember You Will Die. It expresses the inevitability of death, and we're going to look at uh, the uh, art and uh, folklore of death, dying, and mourning. That is tomorrow. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today. K-pop stars are products of fantasy world. On the next Radio Lab, we enter the multi-billion dollar image machine that is K-pop. The girl next door, all cute, and you know, like the ideal girlfriend kind of idea. It's a prison you decide to walk into. Join us for the next Radio Lab. Join us this Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio.
This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.